this evening, I'd like to uh, talk to you about um, one of the Bodhisattva vows. Um, these vows are on page 21 of uh, our handbook. And uh, as you can see, there's four bodhisattva vows. And uh, today, I'd like to spend some time exploring the first vow that we have. So I was thinking, uh, try something a little different. I was thinking we could just chant the first vow together. And um, we'll do it a little different than we normally do it. Um, the format would be, um, I'll say the vow, and I'll hit the vow, and we'll all stay together, and we'll do it three times. So, um, so before we start, um, just take a moment to get settled uh, back in again. Beings <coughs> are numberless. I vow to save them. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. to save them. So taking these vows, stating these vows to save all beings, there might be a sense that you know we've taken on an impossible task. And the way that we recite these vows, or beings are numberless, I vow to save them. You know, it is an impossible task. It's, it's not, not possible. But maybe there's an, another way you know, to maybe come at these vows and look at these vows. I wanted to explore a couple of options tonight. One way to look at them is that we all just did vows to save each other. And so everybody in this room took a vow to say, not just all beings, but everybody in this room. And in return, lots of vows to save me. Right? So, you know, Yoshi's taking a vow, 
to save me and everyone else here. And we've taken vows to save him and everyone here. I think it's a, you know, I think it's pretty powerful. It's pretty moving. It's a sense of the great support that I feel when I come and serve viewing it in that perspective. And it doesn't just end here. As we say that beings are numberless, about to save them, but in a broader sense, numberless beings are taking these vows to save us. So Bodhidharma right now, he's sitting in the fifth century, taking up these vows to save us. We've taken vows to save him. Dogen right now is sitting in the 13th century, he's taking up vows to save us, and we've done the same. Future practitioners have to have taken vows to save us. We're taking these vows to save them. There's just great support in this. We're not doing it alone. And I think sometimes when we come to these vows, we're like, oh, I vow to save all beings. It's impossible. And it is. But you can't do this alone. Even the Buddha stated, I, along with all beings, simultaneously have attained the world. These vows that we take, they kind of act like tributaries that kind of flow into this great river of God that all beings participate in, add into this river. This river is like constantly trying to wake us up. It's asking us to move more deeply into our lives. It's interesting when we think of uh, the word religion. You know, I think of um, it being like a system of faith or worship. Uh, but I read somewhere, I looked it up. That the word religion in Latin means to rebind uh, or bind back. And, like, so that's interesting, right? It's like, oh, bringing us back to something that well, isn't appropriate, um, you know? And so, there's some work that needs to be done to bring that back. And I think some translations, and I tried to look this up, I couldn't find it, so I could be misremembering, but some translations of meditation would call the practice, call the med- practice of meditation as remembering. Um, could be just making that up, but I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. <laughs> That's one of the meanings of the word sati. Okay. We, we translate it as mindfulness. That's true. Okay. Remember. Yeah. And so, like, remember what? Back to what? Don't know. You know. I think this is kind of the great mystery. So I think, like, when we take these vows, it's not just a process of just setting our attentions, but it's like it's to remember, you know, that we're just, well, what have we forgotten? What, what are we missing? I think these vows are pointing at something. I think they're pointing at the very fabric of reality is supporting us. It's nurturing us. It's nudging us. It's 
encouraging us. I heard another story, <laughs> this one of Suzuki Roshi. Uh, one of his students was like, frustrated, does anybody remember the story? Like, you know, he's sitting and didn't feel like he was enlightened, and asked Suzuki Roshi, how come I'm not enlightened yet? And, or how come you haven't enlightened me yet? And Suzuki Roshi responded, like, I'm doing the best I can. You know, <laughs> like, I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is true. I think this is true not just to him. I think it's true of birds, leaves, rats, and some worms, and rocks, idols, doors, and countless other garments. Give their best. Um, I've been doing some gardening. Uh, and it's actually started at CMM uh, when I was there. I really enjoyed the gardening there. One of the monks was a gardener, and uh, his uh, little teachings of gardening really were stuck with me. Yeah. One of the, I probably showed this, was that he was teaching me how to cut kale so you could harvest the kale without killing it. And he said, Oh, just leave two weeks off, and the plant will regenerate. And he made the comment that these beings are very generous. So take quite a bit of them and then just regrow. And it's just, you know, I just thought it was such a moving uh, way to engage uh, with these plants and not just resources. It's like an intention, right? It's the world supporting us. And noticing that um, this vow to save all beings, right? Can this plant take this vow? Maybe, you know, in its own way. I think these vows are so integrated into nature that we miss it. For example, like the humble worm, right? Its entire existence, just the fact that it exists, supports plant life. Right? It improves the soil structure, increases fertility, so it promotes plant growth. Plants in themselves, right? Uh, they support countless other things. They kind of support us. And you can call it like, Interdependence, right, and the circle of life. And then thinking about it in terms of like vow. Everything is participating in this vow to save all things. And I think that we like lose our way in this and we forget. And we forget that there is this great support. And you know, like trees die, you know, existed and we're milled into this, so we can't be here and practice. It's like, we forget, and then lose contact with it. Uh, Paul Tillich referred to this as the grounded being. But the forces of greed, hatred, delusion capture our minds and you know, absorb our psychic energy. And these vows help us reconnect, they help us rebind. Remember that we're supported by something. So today is Juneteenth. And um, we celebrate the emancipation of almost four million slaves. Um, you know, closing probably what is one of the darkest chapters in this country. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's a whole nation, the whole world lost its way. It just couldn't connect, you know. And then there's Bodhisattvas. Uh, I had posted a link to uh, some stuff I was reading. Uh, my friend Frederick Douglass, uh, 
which I found very inspirational. But in bodhisattvas such as Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, they work tirelessly to wake us up and save the world. They work so a nation could do better. You know, Frederick Douglass, I, this is actually a Douglass or Douglass, and uh, your uh, uh, Dr. King talks. I kind of made an intention on some important days to actually, you know, do some reading, to actually um, step into the holiday, I guess. Um, so, so do, doing some reading on Frederick Douglass, I didn't realize that, I didn't realize that he actually was a slave. And, uh, you know, he was frequently beaten, had scars. Um, he was removed from his mother in an early age. He was uh, subjected to constant emotional and uh, psychological abuse. And in spite of everything he went through, maybe because of it actually, he worked toward deliberation of millions. After disguising himself as a sailor and boarding a train um, to the north, Frederick Douglass gained his freedom. And I think with incredible courage, he didn't just fade into the sunset. He didn't just go hiding to hide. I'm never going back there. He, under considerable risk, uh, started to speak out about slavery. Much like the Buddha, freedom for him wasn't enough. He was pulled and moved to save everyone he had quit and left behind. In his speech, what to a slave is the 4th of July, said the following. Fellow citizens, above your nation, there is tumultuous joy. I hear the mournful, mournful wail of millions, whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered even more intolerable by the jubilee of the shouts that reach them. So, like he continued to hear the cries of the world, and as we met him, his response, and in his response, he moved to alleviate their suffering. This is just a beautiful example of what this model is. He may, he may have not stated them the way that we do. Right? He might not have the, you know, same form that we have. It's, this is the expression of what I think our vows are pointing to. When he heard the mournful, mournful wails and not those millions, it wasn't just the slaves that he heard. And as he spent his life working for the emancipation for his people, he was actually working for the emancipation for all of us. We're all better off in this place. We all have less suffering than our lives. And for this, I find myself deeply grateful. Um, so I think what I'd like to do now is to go back to the channel, and I'd like to do it one more time. I'm going to change one word. Um, I change the I to. And, um, and this time I'm just going to hit the bell. I'm also going to hit the bell. 